Hello there. Welcome to the Herbcast, the podcast from Herbal Reality, delving into the plant-powered world of herbalism. So do you know your echinacea from your eleutherococcus or your polyphenol from your polysaccharides? Whether you're a budding herbalist, an inquisitive health professional, or a botanical beginner, Herbcast is here to inform and inspire you on your journey to integrating herbs in our everyday lives. So settle down, turn us up, and let's start today's episode of the Herbal Reality Herbcast. Great. Well, I'm here with Joseph Brinkman, and um, it's great to be with you, Joseph. Hey, Sebastian. Thanks for having me. Good to see you again from across the ocean. Yes. For those of you that don't know Joseph, he's a medicinal plant expert, a researcher, published author and also the research fellow in botanical medicinal plants and supply chain at traditional medicinals and uh, been lucky enough to um, cross paths many times over the years in our work with uh, Fair Wild and, and sourcing herbs and so yeah just looking forward to a, a really good conversation with you about you know the state that we're in at the moment in the herbal medicine world and um, dive into some of the challenges and solutions that you you might have some insight into so um yeah you know it's a big question joseph but you know where what's your summary of where we're at at the minute in the herbal medicine world what do you think is going on well it it depends on whether you're talking about ecology or regulations trade you know that's a big topic Uh, there's a lot of issues that are interrelated uh with regard to for example you're in europe with just with market access and all of the increasing regulations in Europe that test for every possible contaminant you could find, which is uh, is impacting farmers. Um, that's one topic. Uh, I just got back from uh, about three weeks on the road visiting a number of farms, and uh, the the daunting uh, reality of of what can be tested for and what limits are being set and whether it's even worth it to export medicinal plants to Europe is actually uh, under discussion with a lot of farmers around the world because of the uh, because of the regulations but um, the reality that many of the contaminants really have always been there or have been there at, at minor amounts. It's just that people are testing for them now. So I think that impacts <laughs> that impacts the trade and use of medicinal plants. And, and when I say contamination, I don't mean deleterious amounts of things. You know, machine harvested herbs have always had a, some weeds in the mix. It's almost impossible to to prevent, but, <laughs> but now laboratories are testing for everything. Uh, that's one thing. Uh, on this most recent trip, I visited about 15 farms over three weeks in India, and uh, some farmers were directly reaching out and asking, what ideas do you have um, about how we can get through these longer uh, drought periods in unpredictability of the monsoons? When the rains come, it's too much all at once. Um, hoping that uh, folks in the uh, buying markets in North America and Europe uh, have some helpful ideas on not only 
methods of agriculture uh, or crops that might be drought resistant or might be more suitable. Um, but uh, new technologies, um, you know, they they see what's happening. And uh, so uh, and I've often said, if you don't believe that significant climate change is happening, talk to farmers. And so I have been talking to them. And, and I think the reality of some of the recent crop shortages, crop failures in the last five to 10 years has a lot of farmers around the world thinking about, should I even be uh, growing what I'm growing now? Should I be growing something different? And that ties into the first point I made, which is if you have a choice and if part of your uh, land is being used for subsistence or for food security, and part of it's being used to grow high value medicinal plants for the export market, but the export market is is putting higher and higher barriers to entry, you might just decide to grow food for the domestic market. So that, uh, to some extent, that addresses part of your question about um, medicinal plants or the state of herbal medicine. And, and uh, I've wondered myself, you've probably wondered this as well, whether the the materia medica that herbalists rely on or companies rely on that require import that aren't produced where you live i don't know that that range of plants might shrink um, people might need to get more clever and look at what's growing around them a bit more uh, and that raises all sorts of other questions about livelihoods and tradition and traditional ecological knowledge, traditional medical knowledge and um, transmission of that knowledge. And, and it's understandable people need to make different uh, decisions in times of crisis. And uh, just uh, I'll say one more thing, because this is a conversation and I've already been talking without <laughs> interruption for about five or six minutes. But there there is also a mass migration of people. You see it in Europe, people uh, coming from Western Asia and Africa into Europe. And and I saw on the television news here this morning that we're averaging about 10,000 people a day coming to the United States border, a lot of them coming from Nicaragua and El Salvador and Guatemala. So, uh, you know, it's impossible to determine how many are climate refugees, how many are looking for a better life. They could be both the same thing, uh, are trying to escape oppression. Uh, all of it could be related, uh, but that's what we're faced with. And we're talking about herbal medicine, but when large amounts of people pick up and leave and uh, their former occupation was wild collection of plants or farming where they live, then there is a disruption in uh, traditional knowledge. So. You tell me what the state of herbal medicine is uh, in the United Kingdom. <laughs> it's similar in many ways. I mean, you, you paint a, a, a challenging picture because, you know, I think reflecting your experience on the ground that there is a, the environment is contaminated in lots of ways, hence stricter and stricter regulations. That's a sort of separate area in a way, but also a, um, a farmer base and collector base, because the same happening in the wild to a certain degree, that is under pressure um, to deliver to those standards, but also suffering from climate 
uh, crisis impact. And then the third thing that challenges the herbal world is movement of uh, labor and then traditional growers or harvesters um, not, not wanting to do that, the younger people perhaps moving away uh, because it's not enough value in their, in their work or enough security is, is also what you're sharing. So I think in the UK, um, we obviously import a lot of our uh, herbs into the country. There used to be quite a vibrant herbal growing uh, community and industry, but that's slowly uh, withered out, largely because of production volumes and the cost, because it is often um, cheaper from abroad in Europe. But also, this is where many of the species used in our materia medica come from. And so we, we suffer, or we, should we say, we face the challenge of those regulations on a, on a, on a daily basis. Um, I suppose I land on the side of, because of the modern agricultural system and pressures on ecosystems, and we are prescribing whatever the legal definition is, in, in essence, medicines in terms of helping people's health and to in, enhance it. We want to make sure that we're using plants that are as ecologically and um, socially responsibly sourced as we can. And so, like with our food or our clothes, you know, it's a similar, similar relationship in a way. And so, even though those challenges are there, you know, I'd rather know what they are, and I would rather work with people to try and find solutions to that and you know I am very bought into and I'm a deep believer in third-party certification as a way of regulating that value chain if you can't go and visit or have such a direct relationship um, and I hope and I think we've all seen examples where when you do develop a closer relationship with your value chain and the farmers and the, the communities then you can help understand their problems more directly and where you can support, you can help mitigate that challenge. And they can understand our problems as well with pesticide residues or pyrrolizidine alkaloids or tropane alkaloids or, you know, you know, PAH or, you know, these, um, you know, byproducts of, of uh, combustion engines, etc. So that's how I see a way through the challenge that we face. Um, of course, you know, you've also written, Joseph, you were, I think you were the lead author, were you, in the Scientist Warning on Climate Change and Medicinal Plants paper? Um, oh, that, that, that was uh, Dr. Wendy Applequist was the... Uh, oh, Applequist, yes. From Missouri yes, Botanical Garden, right. Sorry, along with Wendy Applequist, you wrote that. And that, I think that, that article really lays out the reality on the ground in a, in a really groundbreaking way that I, I found when I came across it, my understanding of how climate crisis in, impacting the potential to practice herbalism you know, effectively due to A, availability, but also um, you know, changing phytochemical um, balance yeah. within the plant. Well, that's a, that's a fascinating area. And, and before I respond to that, uh, something you, you mentioned triggered a memory. I recall um, reading a paper, and I'm sorry, I can't remember the paper, but it was about uh, what uh, what England did during World War II when their supply chain of medicinal plants was interrupted because it had been formally coming through Germany and there was a whole national campaign to get people to plant medicinal plant gardens <laughs> in the war effort. <laughs> um, so that it happened once before where, uh, where that 
and there, we also have some of that history in the United States uh, during the Civil War in the 19th century. Supply routes were interrupted, and uh, there was more of a reliance on indigenous plants and learning uh, from uh, uh, from the tribes. Uh, what plants were used for what during that time. Anyway, sidetrack. Um, the paper uh, with Wendy, yeah, the most fascinating part of that for me was, was the realization uh, through some of the research that uh, phenological mismatches were starting to happen and be observed, and also that some plants were moving, and that, that whole idea... <laughs> <laughs> uh, we're moving up in altitude, and I had read some surveys from uh, about every 10 years in China. They do surveys uh, in different parts of the country and reading that certain plants that formerly only reached a certain altitude were now being found another thousand meters higher and and uh, so on and so forth that, that this push forward or push upward was uh, the, the plants that had the ability to continue to move up to survive that was happening and observable and that's something um, that I wrote about in a paper that was the, the, where the lead author was um, uh, Tony Cunningham as well uh, looking at high altitude plants and um, basically there's you know once you get to the top there's no more <laughs> nowhere to go uh, so these ideas really really blew my mind the fact that you know plants can try to get away animals can get away much uh, they can get away a little bit more easily uh, to find a new place to go to with the weather changing certain plants can migrate fast enough and others cannot so that that area is fascinating to me and then uh, what you had asked me to write about for uh, herbal reality was what do we know about the change in chemistry and of course we don't know enough yet obviously when a plant moves to a different altitude or is adapting to new conditions the chemistry will change so that could have an effect one way or the other on efficacy so it's it's fascinating hmm. i mean joseph just chipping in there i think that herbalism in a way is the study and observation of nature isn't it herbalists by the uh, practice and the um relationship with plants and, and nature are observing these changes and over some time scale could we say 30 40 50 years you know with close observation i wonder if there will be some you know change in how plants get used clinically as well potentially well that, that's true i think um historically herbalist practitioners um, observe how the plants and the, the mixtures, the preparations from them work or don't work in patients. And that's how you build your, your knowledge on how you know what to prescribe. I've often wondered if an herbalist is buying herbs from the shop without awareness or visibility to the origin of the materials and awareness of the chemistry of the materials from country X or country Y, how the practitioner deals with that in the clinical setting. Wow, I've been prescribing this for a while and 20 patients that responded, well, I got a new batch from the shop and and now the tincture is not doing what it should. You know, I've, I've often wondered about that and, and I, I learned by observation I, I put things in my mouth you probably shouldn't uh, but <laughs> I make things and I try them and I see what they do to me that's one way to learn um, and I imagine other herbalists do similar things 
And obviously, if you have the opportunity or if you have a busy clinic and you're seeing lots of patients with presenting with similar conditions, you have the opportunity to have a better idea of how the preparation's working in your population. But I, I think it's, you know, visibility, you brought it up before. I think it is difficult for practitioners to have the access to the information about where the herbs came from and uh, at least here I don't know about where you are um, I think that's getting better I think some herb shops or dispensaries are are more consciously buying from suppliers who are transparent and will tell you where the herbs are coming from um, no I think you're, you're right I think there is more and more of that available and you know there are you know, there's organic herbs, there's uh, some companies, you know, that are uh, publishing whether they're what the pharmacopoeia grade is, for example, or at least some of the phytonutrients in the in the um, in the you know, tincture or the, or the capsules. Right. And I think right. that's super valuable. I mean, you've worked a lot with pharmacopoeias, Joseph, haven't you? And um, what do you think their role is in in? Well, should we start with yeah, clinical herbalism in a way there at that level, and the and then perhaps the industry as a whole. Well, the uh, the traditional pharmacopoeias, the pharmacopoeias that uh, started to appear a few hundred years ago, uh, aimed to describe the material at the pharmacy or the chemist shop or the druggist shop or wh whatever was being used uh, for making preparations for patients. So the aim was, let's describe the quality that's used therapeutically. And in trade, even hundreds of years ago, there was certainly an awareness of different quality grades of the same herb that might have different intended uses. And uh, sorting those grades in commerce, they have different values assigned. And the pharmacopoeias aim to define the therapeutic quality, the minimum. It has to be at least this to have a to be have a reproducible um, effect at this dosage for treating that if you prepare a tincture in this way, for example. So the original pharmacopoeias included basic information on how to discern whether you had the right quality. And over time, uh, these have gotten better. In the United States, the United States pharmacopoeia, a first edition was in 1820. And back then, the the uh, the tests and the descriptions were pretty basic. There was a companion uh, publication called the United States Dispensary or Dispensatory that started coming uh, first edition in 1833, which had uh, elaborated descriptions of the herbal drugs of commerce that you would find in the pharmacy. And so it's been uh, 200, uh, over 200 years here since the first edition, and now the United States Pharmacopeia has pretty detailed descriptions for identity, macroscopic, microscopic, HPTLC, some quantitative assay, and all of the pharmacognostic tests to make sure you have the minimum quality for the intended use. And uh, some of the same herbs over here have completely different standards. For example, by the United States Department of Agriculture, if the item is to be used in foods. An example might be uh, 
the USDA has USDA quality grades for American ginseng as a food. The United States Pharmacopeia has quality grades for American ginseng as a dietary supplement. For those of you watching this, uh, I don't want to get into it too far, but in the United States, we have a middle ground. We have this area of dietary supplements between food and drug, but ostensibly the, the pharmacopoeial standards for dietary supplements are not much different from those if the substance was used as, a, as an active ingredient of an over-the-counter medicine. Um, pretty detailed stuff, but the, the traditional pharmacopoeias in Asia to this day still uh, combine pharmacognosy and uh, therapeutics. So the Ayurvedic Pharmacopoeia of India, the Pharmacopoeia of the People's Republic of China, uh, these sort of compendia include the tests to know if you have the right stuff. And they also have the indications for use and the, uh, in traditional terms, uh, the, the properties and indications for use. That's not, that doesn't really happen in the West. They're separate. In Europe, you have the European Pharmacopoeia, and where you are, the British Pharmacopoeia, for quality testing of minimum quality. And then uh, in the EU, you have the European Medicines Agency that has all the therapeutics and all the stuff that has to be on the label of the medicine. And same here, the FDA handles the labeling of herbal drugs here, and the USP handles the quality. Uh, I may have gotten way off on that, but the role of pharmacopoeias, I, th I think they they still matter and they're getting better and they just define a minimum quality. In my experience with companies, uh, in some cases, um, the quality defined in the pharmacopoeia really is a minimum and the company I'm affiliated with decides we want even one of the higher quality grades than what the pharmacopoeia requires. So that becomes an extra pharmacopoeial requirement if you, you want the real stuff <laughs> and to what you're what you mentioned before uh, visibility uh, access direct uh, relationships with producers are essential in order to get access to specific qualities that meet pharmacopoeial standards and are produced uh, using credible sustainability standards and and like you said i'm also a believer as you know in uh, third-party auditing of standards. Um, I don't inherently trust companies who say um, their products are sustainable. Yeah, I'm with you 100%. I think in the, the world we live in and the complexities of the, the growing, the harvesting, the transport, the risks all through the chain, and just the, just the human connection of, of having some, some relationship to help people that you're, you're working with and understand their challenges. I, I really agree. I mean, one thing that really strikes me for what you just said there is this this expertise we've got in um, the pharmacopoeia in terms of quality, and you know, it really is deep scientific expertise and and therapeutics as well. Um, where does sustainability fit into these quality standards, Joseph? Well, that's a good point, and it's actually being deliberated at this time by different pharmacopoeial committees around the world. Uh, I took note uh, a couple of years ago, the Korean Pharmacopoeial Committee submitted a report to um, the CITES Secretary at the uh, Convention on the International Trade in Endangered Species with a, a tabulation of which pharmacopoeial articles uh, in the Korean Pharmacopoeia 
were uh, CITES listed plants. Hmm. And uh, so I've been taking note of that. The Mexican Pharmacopeal Commission in the third edition, which just came out last year of, um, I won't try to say it in Spanish, that would be embarrassing, but in English, the Mexican Herbal Pharmacopeia, which is an official compendia of Mexico. It's a, it's a annex to the Mexican Pharmacopeia, which has the, the synthetic drugs, and then they have the Mexican Herbal Pharmacopeia. In the front matter, uh, they make reference to the conservation status of Mexican species that are in the pharmacopoeia and provide a link to the national, uh, Mexico's national list of endangered species. So, uh, and I know um, uh, that other pharmacopoeial committees are discussing this. I did make a presentation. Um, uh, I'm, a, I'm a member of an expert committee with the United States Pharmacopoeia, and I did make a presentation a few years ago proposing um, that we start to at least inform users of the monographs of the conservation status of the, uh, of the botanicals so that uh, consumers, companies, practitioners can at least be informed and then maybe make informed decisions. And the reason I say that, uh, it goes back to uh, an initiative. I think you and I have talked about this, Sebastian, but uh, years ago when I first started going to Chengdu, uh, maybe 15 years ago, uh, working on a project in the panda habitat, in um, Sichuan province. I got to know some of the folks at the Chengdu University of Traditional Chinese Medicine. And around 2008 or nine, they were exploring ideas in the curriculum there to substitute endangered animal, plant, animal parts in the Materia Medica with plants that could be produced sustainably that would be reasonably expected to, ha to have the same pharmacological action. So they were looking to, can, can we modernize the TCM Materia Medica to stop using at least uh, animal parts if there's a plant? And then the next question is, but the plant has to be sustainable. You can't substitute uh, bare bile um, for a plant that um, that is uh, endangered or threatened. So I started to hear about that then, and um, I actually uh, facilitated bringing uh, one of the professors from the university along with some folks from WWF China to the American College of Traditional Chinese Medicine in San Francisco uh, to make a presentation on that, because at the time the president at ACTCM was also involved with curriculum for all the schools of TCM in the United States. And, you know, I got high on this idea, can we come up with a way for practitioners when formulating, even at a patient-specific basis, if they had a some kind of system to say, all things being equal, if I want uh, my, my um, the basic formula for this patient to contain this, this, and this, but by using this database, um, I can see the conservation status of herb X is this, and I could substitute it for herb Y, um, which would be a better decision. I still think it's a fantastic idea. It would take <laughs> years to put together. <laughs> You know, I came across that uh, in your in your article that you mentioned in your article, and um, uh, just today. And um, we've also been working on that in another 
uh, life I have with a group called the Herbal Alliance in the UK, which is a collection of the practitioner associations, a sort of community um, space that we have. Um, we've also been thinking about, you know, in terms of solutions for these areas, because complex area, the sustainability and what does sustainability mean? And, you know, the value chain, the supply chain is so long and difficult for practitioners when they're busy, often living in a city, prescribing, you know, pre-prepared uh, remedies, you know, what can they, what can they do? And so I was, I was wondering, did that, did it ever get, did it get anywhere? Cause we've been trying to develop a module in sustainability as well. That would be a harmonized module to go into or be, you know, freely available to the colleges in the UK to include for their students and then be a part of CPD and continuing professional development for those of uh, us long in the two really. Yeah, not, not that I'm aware of it would be a massive undertaking, well worth it. it it's 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 the resources, uh, resources and, and a competent team to sort through all the data and put it together. I've had, I've had conversations with a number of people trying to get at this from different angles, even making something uh, freely available online that takes basically takes all of the herbs of commerce and this might be you know uh, maybe five six thousand herbs that are traded internationally um, and it, it, it's one thing to to gather the data and input it but then to be relevant it has to be managed and monitored and updated because the status has changed and it's not good enough to uh, uh, merely put in whether uh, something is CITES listed and which appendix, appendix it's listed on, you really need to look at the uh, national and regional uh, assessments of it as well, which is getting better and there's more of it all the time. And, and uh, one of the recent projects uh, I was fortunate to work on was, was assessing the global status of rhodiola species over a couple years uh, period and and I was just uh, a I love it as a researcher when you can come across uh, digitized uh, books online that you didn't know existed that you can download and access but in that project I realized that the Russian Federation they have a red book for every uh, uh, every territory and region uh, and republic of the Russian Federation that's separate from the national red list. And then within that, they even have smaller regional red lists. And then expanding on that, I found that that's actually the case in a number of countries, or they don't call it a red list in the United States. Each state has different assessments of different species that occur in their states. And so uh, with my mind, uh, the idea of getting granular and, and gathering all of the data known about a species would be necessary because the point is something can be critically endangered in country X, but it can be least concerned in country Y. So the population dynamics could be completely different, the trade scenario, the production scenario from one region to the next, even in a large country. So you can't make a blanket statement, this is an endangered species. It could be endangered here, but not here. So then it just necessitates management, it necessitates knowing where things come from and how they're coming to market. And uh, <laughs> I would love to see this happen, but it's a massive undertaking. I agree with you that database is a great idea and would, of course, as you say, be a lot of uh, detail and data. But I, I think there would be a way to at least 
there should be fundamental education in the basics of sustainability anyway sure. at least what are sure. the workings of the value chain and uh, this quality criteria we talked about etc you know those are the sort of fundamentals and those could empower people to make choices and you could easily do something out of thought at least for some of the main species you know and there is quite a lot of data on some of the cites species and some of the fair wild species for example but i, I hear what you're saying about that regional you know specificity well, um, well it's easier yeah. it, you know if a species is endemic to one area like mm. you pick a country a country like south africa or a country like Afri uh, australia there's a number of species that are endemic there that don't occur anywhere else unless they've been taken out of country and, and uh, produced elsewhere. Um, so in a case like that, it's much easier to determine what the population is and, and what the sustainable production scenario is for that species. But if a species occurs like Rhodiola rosea occurs in 30 countries, uh, it's it's uh, circumpolar and, and occurs all the way around the globe and then down into mountain areas in, in Europe and parts of Asia. Um, getting these, the, the picture, the whole picture is really, really complicated. I mean, Joseph, what do we feel about Rhodiola? I mean, you know, you really hit on a serious point that, I mean, you know, Rhodiola has become, you know, one of the most popular adaptogens in retail. It's been popular with herbalists for, for a long time, but, you know, the research on it, etc., really proving its um, benefit for many of modern-day stresses or just life's challenges as an adaptogen, lifting the mood, etc. Um, I, I, you can't speak for the whole industry, but, you know, what do we feel as a community that we've allowed that rhodiola to go on a CITES list? You know, how, how does that happen when we seem to know so much but we apparently know so little. Yeah, well, I know a little bit of how it happened because um, the uh, one of the research projects, funded research projects that I was involved with, uh, produced a lot of the material that was reviewed to help make the decision uh, for CITES listing of rhodiola species. So I'm probably not very popular uh, at the moment. But um, the, the data was compelling, and um, some, of the, some of the things we uncovered were alarming. And just the, the geography, the fact that most of the rodeo in the world comes from uh, an area, if people know their geography, where the Russian Federation hits Kazakhstan and Xinjiang, Uyghur Autonomous Region in Mongolia, but mostly Southern Russian Federation in that area. But uh, in our research, the levels of poaching that were being reported, and even in uh, protected areas and uh, transport across porous borders, confiscations, um, and coupled with other data, such as more and more reports of finished products on the market containing uh, uh, other species, um, which is an indication of scarcity or rarity of the genuine article. And uh, through interviews with companies and, and finding that demand is going up, yet uh, 
cultivation experiments really have been going on since the 70s, and it's a particularly difficult case. If you've ever <laughs> gone out to see rodeo where it lives in the wild, it likes to hang off of rocks. <laughs> I, went to, I went to Scotland this autumn looking for it, and, it and, I, and I found quite a lot right up in the north where gnarly cliff Right, right, right. You, know, you couldn't reach it. <laughs> right. It like, uh, that's where it likes to live. So there, uh, what we tried to emphasize in our work, um, Tony Cunningham and I and others, was that there have been efforts and there are efforts with farmers, uh, particularly in the north, in Alaska and Alberta and Finland, Latvia, even Russian Federation, some other places to cultivate it. But it's complicated because the farmers, for the most part, have determined after many years that it's it's likely a six-year crop and so therein lies the, the problem in the economics how many farmers can afford to put a crop in and have no return on their investment for six years and not only that if you if you want to have a sustainable production um, well I'll just back them and say farmers are doing it. So, but farmers have also complained that so long as the wild collected material, the unregulated, undocumented wild material is commercially available, it's still coming to market uh, at a lower cost than farmed materials. So they they uh, weren't able to get people interested in making long term commitments, which is absolutely essential to build up the organic cultivation base of it. Because really, uh, a company has to take a position, say, well, I'm going to come out with a product, uh, whether it's a, a consumer product or a professional product, and I want to use certified organically grown rhodiola roots. Uh, and therefore, I need to look in the crystal ball and see how much I'm going to need in the next few years because not only am I asking to buy X tons from these farmers this year, but if I expect my product to still be in the market six years from now, I need them next year to plant and then the year after to plant, assuming growth, plant more each year. So this farmer has all of these rotations on their land that are not making any money where one sliver of the land each year gets harvested and then they plant again another plot. So you have to have a lot of land and the ability to do that. And well, they do have a lot of land up in Canada uh, to, do, to do this. But uh, our pitch or, or one of our conclusions in our work was that that uh, uh, industry does need to support the growers uh, and and the growers are also they've been honest about trying to figure out how to mimic wild quality which hasn't been easy like like we just mentioned this product uh, this herb hangs off the sides of rocks and in rocky scree and crevices and um, it, maybe it doesn't like to live in uh, neat rows on a farm. <laughs> uh, so uh, figuring out how to, to have the same genetic material that can trigger the same uh, stress responses to produce the same chemical composition. It's not so easy, but I think I think more and more the, the, the farmers have been working at this and they're getting there and I think uh, it is time and obviously with the CITES listing um, uh, 
it'll be harder and harder to get authentic material, particularly because of geopolitics, and depending on what sort of relationships companies have with traders in the Russian Federation, and whether, um, I mean, there are examples, and I'm hearing there's an extraction house in Europe who's, who may have certified organic, wild, and cultivated roots coming out of the Russian Federation, but then there, again, there's, a, there's an issue of access to go there freely, inspect, and when uh, countries are taking sides in a war, that's really complicated. And and in the case of Rhodiola, which we also pointed out, the trade route for a lot of the Russian material goes across the border into the Xinjiang Uyghurs, Uyghur Autonomous Region of the People's Republic of China, which is also at the moment not very transparent and difficult for Westerners to go there without a special visa and have a look around. So it's uh, visibility is really a problem with this herb. So I would encourage anybody using it to build relationships with the farmers, like I mentioned, in Alaska and Alberta and in uh, Scandinavia and uh, wherever else uh, people are trying to scale up because they actually need a long-term advance commitment to put more on the ground. Well, I, I like what you're saying, although I know it's probably not popular, but this idea of you know limiting you know unsustainable practices that are driving the price down so that those people that are trying to do it sustainably and ethically aren't rewarded and it's the same as our food system you know you're you're rewarded for growing cheap unnutritious or you know lacking in nutritious food and you have to pay to be organic and fair <laughs> trade you have to pay a cost to be an ethical business and that surely is the wrong way around and you know if anyone if any position of power is ever listening to this it'd be great for the organic community and the in the um, ethical trading community to be supported in a, in a more um, uh, respectful way to their efforts and endeavors to help society and governments meet their targets in terms of, you know, living wage, uh, net zero, you mm-hmm. know, a, a, a society that, that looks after the, the, the source of our goods and the people that are involved in caring for them. So, I, I you know, CITES is tough from a trading point of view, but I think for me, it's like A and E. It's like the accident emergency department in a hospital, isn't it? And that's, you know, on our watch. Rhodiola ending up there, I think, is a wake-up call to the whole health and herbal community that we're, you know, we're all complicit in a way because if you practice herbal medicine, you, you know, m- many people, in, if you practice Chinese or, or Western herbalism, you're bound to be using rhodiola at some point. And so, I think we've got to find a way to look at the list of herbs beneath the CITES list in a way and prevent any more going on there. And I know you wrote this recent paper, uh, Joseph, about how we, we thought there were, whatever, 900 or so herbs in trade, and you've come up with a paper showing that there is over, is over 3,000 and 3,200. In cultivation. In cultivation, right, yeah. Right. Um, the, the Sorry, I said in trade, didn't I? Yeah, in cultivation. I know we've known there's more in trade, but you, so you've you've gone from approximately a thousand up to three thousand. So. Yeah, yeah. The um, before I get to that, I just I want to respond to one last thing you said, and it had to do with uh, CITES. It is a blunt instrument, 
and but it necessitates documentation for legal trade and identification of the material so it is a bit of a rude awakening but i suspect one impact will be that since all of the uh, species are being listed and there's like 90 rhodiola species that uh, this will lead to better identification and uh, furthermore uh, i think it it also relates to our discussion about ethics and about doing the right thing and um, when you're prescribing medicines or uh, consulting people in advising them on what herbal medicines might be helpful to them the whole idea that something you might be prescribing with frequency if you're buying it off the uh, conventional market, meaning no documents, an undocumented herb, <laughs> which most herbs in global com commerce face it are. If they're not coming with even, if the bare minimum of documentation of organic certification, which at least gives you a window into the origin, you're buying undocumented herbs and you have no idea how many hands they changed. And you also have no idea if those herbs were poached from some uh, beautiful landscape that's a protected area where poachers have come in and, and uprooted everything they could find for money and, and uh, sold it to smugglers, which is and was the case with rhodiola. So you don't really want to be putting that in your medicine to your patients. So I think uh, it, it it's an opportunity for people to become more aware about where things come from and how they get from point A to point B and to not support illegal trade, um, which can be rather common in border areas in particular, uh, depending on uh, how important or popular the substance is. And of course, CITES listing doesn't stop illegal trade. People still trade elephant tusks and you know i mean it doesn't stop it but it, it provides a mechanism for action at borders if caught and and anyway so uh i mean just one thing there. i mean otherwise you're just left with the voluntary regulation I mean, at least there are voluntary standards like you said i love what you said there the bare minimum organic standards yeah. joseph you know let, lest we all hear that and then in terms of wild collection you've got fair wild. you know fair wild right um, Much better. I mean, there's other wild collection standards, UEBT and things like that as well that we should mention. But um, I think, you know, that's what we we want to be responsible herbalists. And there are these voluntary systems in place that you can support and you can um, have a much greater um, confidence about how the, the, the people that are collecting or growing have been cared for, how the ecosystem's been cared for. And that does play into quality. Exactly. There is a relationship exactly. between the sustainability and the quality. And, and you know, a, a CITES listing of rhodiola is actually an opportunity for uh, a producer group to implement the Fairwild standard uh, because the Fairwild standard requires risk assessment, resource assessment, monitoring, management plan. It gives everyone else in the in the value chain, in the trade chain, uh, documentary evidence and assurances that this is coming to market sustainably. It's it's not a death sentence to go on CITES. Golden Seal is on CITES from the United States, and so is American ginseng and, and other species. It just requires that you have a management plan and you have quotas and you have a, an understanding 
understanding of the dynamics of the population dynamics regeneration and you have a plan you have a way to manage the the harvest area and um, that's that's the best case scenario I imagine some operators where rhodiola grows wild will implement stricter standards that require independent third-party audits and documentation of how they're managing the population and that that's how it should be it will cost more guess what sustainability is not free so um, the people will experience higher costs of raw materials but uh, botanical raw materials have been undervalued for centuries so um, the real cost if you include the costs of sustainable wild ethical and responsible sustainable resource management um, it takes resources and labor and uh, documentation and audits, and none of that's free. So, you know, the, the prices will adjust up to what they should be, and there should be parity. The wild, sustainably wild collected rhodiola should um, not be less expensive than sustainably cultivated rhodiola, and we'll see what happens in the coming years. You mentioned the, the other paper. Um, I have to say, this the, the paper that um, was just published in Economic Botany, uh, really of almost anything I've ever done. That that one uh, has captivated <laughs> captivated my spare time for some years. But the uh, and I'm I'm delighted that it was published, and I'm delighted that the project was was funded. It was funded by the German Federal Agency for Nature Conservation to try to to see if we could update the numbers in the 2000s, mid 2000s. Um, uh, a lot of numbers were floating around that maybe there were as many as 70,000 medicinal plants in use in the world. That doesn't mean in trade because most medicinal plants are used locally or regionally and never traded out of their regional area. Um, but maybe about 3,000 species were in global commerce and about less than a third of those uh, were cultivated. So people have been using numbers between seven and 900 for, you know, for quite a while. And I often wondered about those numbers and had a feeling they were higher. And it's just one of those things. It just keeps bugging you. And <laughs> so um, uh, I was delighted a few years ago, it's five years ago now, when a funded project came up to try to get at it, not just get at the uh, a new number, but try to look at some other issues. What are the drivers? What are the reasons something might move from primarily wild collection to cultivation? Is it scarcity? Is it economic? What are, what are the reasons? So it was a fascinating project, and I, I got to work on it with good friends, uh, and um, and we were able to publish it this year. And and so there we. We found evidence, uh, documentary evidence, of commercial cultivation of over 3,200 species. So we more than tripled the previously used number, and I'm delighted to see it's already being cited in some papers. I saw a paper last week where that new number is being cited. So uh, in and of itself, I, I guess, it, you know, it's 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 kind of dry it's kind of boring if but if you're a, a nerd you know uh it's pretty <laughs> what's it called what's the name of the paper is it, uh, it global estimation uh, yeah new global estimate uh, do i have that paper sitting out here no I global estimation of medicinal plants and commercial cultivation yeah and, and actually i don't know if you can put it up post but there's a there's a, a link for a, a online view only i can't share the pdf but you can go to economic botany and and read it online with the link. 
Um, we'll put a well, link in the in the chat in the, in the, in the post. So um, I can send that to you. Um, so tell us why you know what have you found out about why herbs have moved into the into cultivation? What was the conclusion? Well, we didn't find enough evidence that uh, that conservation status was the driver. Um, mm. Demand seems to be a driver, and uh, and this wasn't our primary. Uh, this is a secondary question in, in the research questions we're looking at, but we were asked to look at it. We're also asked to look at methods of, of production, taking special attention towards conservation-oriented oriented agriculture to see um, what that was looking like. So we really spent a lot of time trying to see um, if there was a rise in so-called natural fostering and natural fostering semi-wild or replenishment, but taking the same genetic stock and planting more of it where it occurs in the wild. And, and uh, we spent a lot of time trying to find more evidence of that. Uh, I have to say we were all disappointed that we didn't find more, but we also in our limitations of the study we suspected there is a lot more but it's not in the published literature and we we didn't uh, we suspect there's more of it than we found uh, or it's being described under different terminology um, but in many cases we found that companies uh, are wanting uh, uh, are involved with controlled cultivation. They want to have uh, better control over the specific quality, especially for large quantities and trying to, to get away from uh, the uncertainties of variation in chemistry from region to region or from season to season. So uh, we found a lot of examples of controlled cultivation, which controls for the genetic material, the starting material, uh, the site selection, uh, the methods of agriculture, and the intentional uh, uh, the, the intentional way it's handled, and the scientific measurement throughout the uh, growing period to make determinations, looking at the chemistry of when it is the absolute right time to harvest, which is the opposite of 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 maybe traditional or uh, extensive farming where you may, for example you may have seen this in arid zones where um, that are monsoon dependent where people throw seeds out and hope for rain they buy seeds off the open market there's no seed selection seed purity is not known seed quality is not known and hope for rain and see what comes that's the opposite of control cultivation so there's a, a lot of that uh, but there's an increase in control cultivation and, and an intercropping agroforestry system. So we were looking at, uh, under the umbrella of sustainable agriculture, we included anything that was called regenerative organic, if it was certified, regenerative organic or organic or demeter biodynamic or permaculture. These are areas, and then we looked into that to see uh, uh, what innovations are happening that could be called conservation-oriented agriculture. That's what we were looking at. Um, you know, the vast majority of, of cultivation, uh, I, I think a surprise for me was that, I don't know if it was a surprise, it shouldn't be at my age, but um, the global production and trade of medicinal plants is still characterized by micro to small sized production that gets consolidated. So these are small holders in some countries, small holders who are, have 
home gardens or what you would call a home garden where it's not just subsistence but they're growing some high value medicinal plants in their home gardens for trade to the broker who comes to the village who consolidates from multiple sources and then sells larger lots so micro to small size production is still big there's a lot of really tiny organic farms around the world that grow 50 things on 20 hectares uh, so there's a lot of that so our, our, our evidence of commercial cultivation can't be conflated with all of the supply is coming from commercial cultivation because we, in our indications, we put uh, to the best of our knowledge, uh, whether it's still mostly wild collected and some cultivated or mostly cultivated and some wild, and then separate line items for different areas, even different er areas in a country. And uh, further complicated by the fact that something that is entirely wild collected in its uh, geographic origin is commercially cultivated on the other side of the world. So uh, it comes to market, uh, and, well, rhodiola would be an example. It's almost entirely wild collected in Russia and in Xinjiang. Uh, and then there's relatively small amounts being farmed in the United States, Canada, and Scandinavia. So just because we found evidence of commercial cultivation doesn't mean that everything coming into market is cultivated. It's just that we found evidence of cultivation. And it would be a, an entirely different study to determine the trajectory or the the rate of change and, and uh, et cetera percentages that are coming from different places yep. yeah oh it's fascinating joseph i mean we've covered so many areas and uh you know it's, i love hearing your um integrated way that you understand the relationship between quality and sustainability and um ecological well-being and of course the people at the heart of it that are uh, facing the daily challenges of um, wild harvesting or, or working on a farm. So, um, yeah, really love speaking with you. Thank you so much for sharing all of your thoughts. And we'll have to do it yeah. again another time because this, we're doing a second series in this podcast. And this was all about, uh, this lot's all about um, solutions in a way. So we're mainly looking at health uh, issues of uh, mood or digestion or uh, uh, you know, circulation, etc. So. I've really enjoyed looking at the solution for sustainability in a way and what can we do with these plants that can help people's health so much how can we make sure we use plants that are grown and, and collected in the ways that we've been talking about in a way that brings benefit not just to the health of someone but the health of the whole ecosystem so um, I love what you do and please keep doing it for us we really need your insight and wisdom well, likewise, always a pleasure to see you and speak, yeah. Sebastian. And I think the topic warrants, uh, uh, you know, we should spend a half day somewhere with other folks on a panel just to keep this discussion going. It is really interesting and I think important. So thanks for uh, the idea. Great. Well, uh, do, do go and read Joseph's articles, which are on Herbal Reality. They're both uh, fantastic. And... Um, you take care, Joseph. Thanks very much. All right. You've been listening to The Herbcast, the podcast from Herbal Reality. We hope you enjoyed this episode. If so, perhaps you'd like to leave us a rating. That would really help us to spread our message for herbal health. We hope you'll join us again for the next episode. And in the meantime, if you'd like a few more herbal insights from us, do have a look at herbalreality.com. Or learn more from us via Instagram, where we're at herbal.reality. And we're on Twitter and Facebook too. 
We'll be back with another episode of the Hubcast soon. Thanks for joining. Thank you.